0: I'm your host Anna Donino and welcome to episode 14 of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode I am enjoying an ice green tea lemonade so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the terrifying case of Jennifer Pan. In Ontario, Canada, in 2010, a home invasion became national news when it was reported that the residence of Vietnamese immigrants Bic and Han Pan and their children Jennifer and Felix Pan was broken into. The horrific scene resulted in the death of Bic and serious injury to Han Pan, but what followed this news was far more disturbing as police began to suspect that the daughter, Jennifer Pan herself, had orchestrated the brutal attack on her parents. The subsequent investigation into Jennifer revealed a seven-year-long web of lies and a careful murder-for-hire plot that devastated the Pan family and shocked the public. Big Pan lived in Vietnam before immigrating to Canada in 1979. Both her and her husband were known as boat people or Asian asylum seekers. They were able to find work at Magma International, which is an auto manufacturer. Han Pan was a successful mechanic, and he was able to save up a good amount of money to pass to his daughter and son after he died, as well as a $1 million life insurance policy on himself. Jennifer Pan was the oldest of the Pan's two children, and she had been described as a bright, friendly, and very happy child. Initially, she was performing well in school, in music, and in sports, and outwardly she appeared to be a dedicated student who had a promising future ahead of her. Her parents started her in piano and figure skating lessons starting from the age of four, and interestingly, she was extremely gifted as a figure skater and even had hopes of going to the Olympics before a torn ligament ended her career. Because the Pans were Vietnamese immigrants, Jennifer grew up under the traditional cultural parenting style that is characteristic of aging countries, which is known as tiger parenting. Her parents pushed Jennifer to constantly be a high achiever and placed very high expectations on her. Jennifer has also described that her parents would isolate her and restrict her social life with dating being especially off-limits. She was not allowed to date or even to attend high school dances or proms. And this parenting style is generally considered overly strict by Western cultures, however, it is important to note that it in no way constitutes abuse. It also seemed to serve Felix Pan well, as he went to a prestigious school to study mechanical engineering and Han dreamed that his son would one day design the cars that he was assembling. Han really wanted Jennifer to be a doctor, but she gravitated towards being a pharmacist because she said that she didn't have the stomach for being a doctor. One day at school, the most outstanding students were supposed to be honored, and Jennifer expected that her name would be called, as did her parents. When it wasn't, Jennifer's parents withdrew from the ceremony and left out of grief and humiliation. After this, Jennifer began to fall short of the expectations that were set forth by her parents. Her grades were dropping, and she decided that her parents could not find out about this. She realized that she would be subject to extra tutoring and extensive study hours if they knew, so she instead decided to lie. These lies quickly snowballed, and as months turned to years, she was forging report cards, college acceptance letters, and started tricking her parents into believing that she was participating in school activities and part-time jobs. When Jennifer failed calculus during her senior year of high school, she was denied graduation and she never actually finished her high school degree. She was granted early acceptance to Ryerson University, however, this was revoked due to the failed calculus class. Around the end of high school, when she was 16 years old, Jennifer was working at a pizza parlor and started seeing a boy named Daniel Wong, who she was entirely in love with. Her parents were oblivious to this, thinking that Jennifer had achieved her diploma and was looking forward to college. Notably, Daniel Wong was an individual who was known for his involvement with drug dealing and was thought to be accustomed to pushing boundaries wherever he could, clearly not someone who Jennifer's parents would want her associating with. While Jennifer told her parents that she was attending college classes, most of the time she was actually with Daniel Wong at his home which was near the campus. She also made money by teaching piano and working in a restaurant. Jennifer hid this relationship for seven entire years, and when it finally did come to light, her parents entirely disapproved. They were still trying to prevent her from dating, even at the age of 24, largely because she was still living in their home. Jennifer's lies completely unraveled in 2010, and she began to plan her parents' murder after Han Pan discovered that she had not graduated from the University of Toronto like she had told them. She had photoshopped the acceptance letter, lied about fake professors, and even gone so far as to create her own diploma online. Her lies were discovered by her parents after her mother followed her to the hospital for sick children, where Jennifer had lied about being employed. Han was absolutely enraged and he gave Jennifer an ultimatum. Either she could stay with her boyfriend David Wong or she would be cut off from her family. And this was quoted in Jeremy Grimaldi's book, A Daughter's Deadly Deception, The Jennifer Pan Story. "First, First you stay at home and go to school. The second choice is to go with Danny Wong and never come back. If not, you'll have to wait until I'm dead. End quote. Along with the ultimatum, her parents forced her to leave her restaurant job, put a GPS in her car, and started monitoring all of her friendships. And apparently these new restrictions were entirely too much for Jennifer. In the spring of 2010, Jennifer first attempted to hire a hitman to kill her father. A friend from high school introduced her to a man named Ricardo Duncan, who she offered $1,500 to to kill her father at work, which he refused. After that, Daniel and Jennifer began to plot together to hire a hitman, believing that she would inherit $500,000 from her parents' death. Daniel gave Jennifer an iPhone and a SIM card and introduced her to Lenford Crawford, who brought David Milvagenham and Eric Carty into the plot, as well as one more person who still remains unnamed. They agreed on the fee of $10,000 for the murder, and on November 8th of 2010, Jennifer unlocked her parents' house's front door and went to bed, calling Milvagenham to tell him that everything was ready. In addition to this call, she flashed her bedroom light on and off to signal that the door had been unlocked. Milvagenham entered the home with two others, all of whom had guns, and it was found that Wong and Crawford were not one of the people who broke into the home, so police are still unsure who the other two gunmen are, although it is assumed that one of them was Eric Cardy. Carty has disputed this though, saying that he was instead the getaway driver. By 2010, the Pan family was in a very secure place, having purchased a large home in Markham, about 20 miles northeast of downtown Toronto with a large savings account and two luxury cars, so it seems the group thought that staging a home invasion and robbery was a plausible scenario. As mentioned, this all happened on the night of Monday, November 8th of 2010, when three people broke into the Ontario home at 238 Helen Avenue, tying Jennifer upstairs, shooting and killing 53-year-old Bic, and severely injuring 60-year-old Han Pan. Felix Pan, which is Jennifer's younger brother, was not home at the time. They entered the home at 10.13pm and Jennifer later told detectives that someone was repeatedly yelling and asking where the money was. The intruders demanded all of the money in the home and ransacked the master bedroom. She heard her father say, quote, I have $60 in my pants upstairs, but my possessions are worth plenty, end quote. The intruders hit Han on the back of the head and forced him and his wife into the basement. At which time, Jennifer heard her mother say, quote, You can hurt us, but please don't hurt my daughter. End quote. Jennifer had actually used her flip phone to call 911 and report what was happening. She told the person on the line, quote, Someone broke in and I heard shots like pop. I don't know what's happening. I'm tied upstairs. End quote. She was then asked, quote, Did it sound like gunshots? End quote. To which she replied, quote, I don't know what gunshots sound like, I just heard a pop. End quote. In the background of this call, the dispatcher then heard a scream from Han Pan, who had survived a gunshot to the shoulder and to the face and had run out into the street for help. After this scream was heard, Jennifer said, quote, I'm okay, my dad just went outside screaming. End quote. When first responders arrived, they found Bick lying face down in front of the family's leather couch, surrounded by blood. And Detective Mike Stesco described the scene quote, There was a lot of blood. It was a real dark, sort of thick colored blood. It wasn't like the trail we followed down, light, sort of splatter. It was thicker. It was by her head, and then she had a blue towel over her head. End quote. She had been shot in the back multiple times before the fatal shot, which was to the back of her head. Han Pan was found having been shot twice, once point-blank in the face, but thankfully he was still alive and he was placed into a medically induced coma to recover. Jennifer was found upstairs in the home tied to the banister with her hands behind her back but otherwise unharmed. Detectives quickly ruled out robbery since nothing of value was missing from the home, cash was left out on the counter, and the Mercedes and the Lexus parked in the garage were untouched. There were other odd things noted at the scene, including the fact that there was no sign of forced entry. These things combined immediately made detectives turn a suspicious eye to Jennifer. Detectives wondered how Jennifer was able to call 911 while she was tied up, and why her parents were brutally attacked while Jennifer was left essentially untouched. Any criminal would not have blatantly left behind an eyewitness, especially in a crime such as this, This wasn't the only thing that police found to be odd about the phone call. On the call, the dispatcher clearly heard Han running outside, and the investigators started to wonder what he could have been so afraid of that he immediately exited the home instead of rushing to his daughter's side to help her. They kept watch over Jennifer and noticed several odd things, such as her appearing to fake cry at her mother's funeral. Jennifer's story really started to unravel when Han Pan woke up and remembered the events of that night clearly. When police interviewed him, his and Jennifer's accounts did not match. Han actually remembered Jennifer coming down the stairs that night with handcuffs on and speaking kindly to one of the intruders. It is widely considered that Jennifer's primary motive for conspiring to kill her parents was her anger towards her parents for forbidding her relationship with David Wong. Police interviewed Jennifer the night of the murder, and only two weeks later, they had collected enough evidence to arrest her taking her into custody on November 22nd of 2010. During the subsequent interview, she confessed to hiring a hitman but claimed that this person was supposed to kill her instead. Also, on November 22nd, she admitted to police that she had left the door unlocked so the intruders could enter. Her accomplices were arrested much later. In April of 2011, Cardi, Wong, and Milvagenham followed by Crawford in May of 2011. Jennifer's trial began on March 19th of 2014 and lasted 10 months, with all five of the accused pleading not guilty to their charges. The evidence against them was extensive. Police showed mobile tracking and text messages, with some of the most important being over 100 messages that were sent between Daniel and Jennifer only six hours before the murder. Additionally, Jennifer was never able to explain how she had made that 911 call with her hands tied. In court, Jennifer admitted her involvement and her intentions, saying that she had hired a man to kill her father, but that this plan fell through when the assassin ran off with the money that she had paid him. She also later testified that the plan was for her to be killed rather than her parents and that she had arranged her own death as a strange suicide attempt, but had called it off. She was charged a cancellation fee of $8,500 by the hired killer, who she referred to only as Homeboy, although this is believed to be Lenford Crawford, who she said she had tried to contact just before the attack. Her claim was that when she had negotiated this cancellation fee and when the intruders entered the home that night, she thought that they were there to collect the money from the cancellation fee. This testimony was not at all convincing to the jury considering her inconsistent story and the mounting evidence against her and the other four accused. The prosecution's theory was that Jennifer loathed her father so much that she wanted him dead, however she hadn't intended for her mother to be harmed. She testified that her loyalty to her mother was the only reason she had remained in the house in the first place. Han Pan himself testified at Jennifer's trial. Telling the jury that he woke up during the night with a gun to his forehead and was ordered to get out of bed. He also said that he saw Jennifer speaking with one of the intruders. Quote, he talked to my daughter. I could not hear what was being said, but they were speaking softly. End quote. Han also told the jury that he had never seen his daughter tied up as she had claimed. Jennifer was convicted on December 13th of 2014 of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to murder. She was sentenced to a life sentence with the possibility of parole at 25 years. Lenford, Crawford, Milvaganam, and Wong were also sentenced to life. She was convicted alongside the other accused parties, Lenford, Crawford, Milvaganam, and David Wong. It is believed that the home invasion was carried out by Milvagenham and Eric Carty, and that Wong, Crawford, and Jennifer were the planners. Eric Carty ended up in a separate trial after his lawyer fell ill during the proceedings, and defense attorneys blamed Cardi for the crime, calling him a psychopathic killer who was motivated by money. Cardi did admit to working with Pan in planning to kill her parents and was sentenced to 18 years in prison with the possibility of parole after nine years. This is, in all aspects, a completely shocking crime, so I do want to talk about Parasite a little bit. Parricide is defined as the murder of a parent or both parents by their own child, and it is one of the most rare forms of homicide, unique because of the intimate and personal relationship between offender and victim. In many of these cases, Parasite occurs when there is a pattern of abuse or neglect within the home, so much so that the child legitimately feels there is no other way out. In the majority of these cases, the murders, quote, occurred because of a long-standing relationship discord or quarrel, end quote. Studies on parricide have shown that these cases do not share the common characteristics of other homicide cases, and substance use, juvenile violence history, and family criminal backgrounds do not appear to be a factor. Jennifer did not grow up in an abusive household. Her parents were certainly strict, and her father in particular held high behavioral standards for her. However, this does in no way constitute abuse. Jennifer's case stands out as a case of parricide for several reasons. It is unusual within incidents of parricide for a daughter to execute a plan to kill their parents. The majority of cases pertain only to male children. Additionally, Jennifer didn't carry out the crime herself, instead, arranging for her so called friends to do so for her, and decided to assume the role of a damsel in distress, per se. It is thought that by detaching herself from the physical act of violence, Jennifer was trying to remain innocent in her own eyes, and it seems that she never even considered being the one to personally kill her parents. There was also a disturbing amount of time that passed between Jennifer initially getting the idea. And when the crime was physically carried out. It was over several months during which decisions were made, details were finalized, and plans were cemented, but seemingly Jennifer did not have a single second thought during this entire time. It was clear that Jennifer hadn't been a survivor of abuse who had finally reached a breaking point, but rather that the murder of her mother and attempted murder of her father was a pre planned event and a carefully orchestrated and heinous crime. Despite the information we have about Parasite, it is extremely difficult to imagine how Jennifer could have justified something so extreme and violent. Jeremy Grimaldi, the author of A Daughter's Deadly Deception, The Jennifer Pan Story, went into detail in his book to try and explain this. He mentions the culture under which Jennifer was raised, saying that he has been able to highlight deception in families that raise their children using this tiger-parenting approach. According to Grimaldi, Jennifer did not organize the murder for financial gain despite the large life insurance policy that she would have received. Instead, she interpreted her father's response to the discovery of what was essentially a double life as a form of abuse. She claimed that she felt trapped, unloved, worthless, and as if she were a prisoner in her own home. Additionally, her relationship with David played a large role clearly, and Grimaldi suggests that his connections with unsavory people gave her the feeling that she was free and created an old-fashioned romantic notion of true love. Finally, Grimaldi explains that Jennifer had become so engrossed in her lies and keeping up the image that she had built around her parents that she simply had become exhausted and she was looking for a way out. Barbara Greenberg, an American clinical psychologist, has stated that she believes Jennifer's selfish and manipulative behavior demonstrated that she has sociopathic tendencies, which does make an air of sense. However, though Greenberg believes Jennifer is at the high end of the antisocial personality disorder scale, this is not an official diagnosis, so it shouldn't be considered as one. As of 2018, Jennifer was serving her sentence at Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario, and her father and brother had requested a court order that would prevent her from contacting them. She is also prohibited from contacting David Wong. Eric Carty died in prison in 2018, and as of today, the rest are still serving their sentences and won't become eligible for parole until 2039. At that time, Jennifer will be 59 years old. This is a quote from Han Pan, quote, When I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I hope my daughter Jennifer thinks about what happened to her family and can become a good, honest person someday, end quote. No matter what drove Jennifer to organize the vicious murder plot, it is clear that her actions were calculated and they were carefully considered and deliberate, That, perhaps, is the most disturbing aspect of this crime, that Jennifer spent months planning her actions, seemingly without reconsidering even once. Personally, I believe that Jennifer became so wrapped up in her own deceptions and she was so far removed from her own life at home that she really was able to convince herself that her parents were being abusive and that she had no other way to protect herself from them. Though the case is technically solved, there are still so many twisted aspects of Jennifer's mind and motives that I don't believe anyone will ever fully understand, and I don't think anyone will ever be able to say for sure why she felt this had to happen. From the outside, she seemed to be a model daughter, but somehow this was all a lie, and it really goes to show that anyone can have a sinister side to them which can emerge out of nowhere. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast, and if you're interested in learning more about the case of Jennifer Pan, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at CrimeBistro.com. If you have an opinion of your own to share, feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at Podcast to leave a comment and to see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again. And as always, until next time.